0: Please look with me at Romans chapter 7, and we'll begin at verse 14. We've been away from Romans uh, for a bit, and I mentioned uh, last week, maybe a couple of weeks ago, that we would take a last little peek at Romans 7 before moving on to Romans 8. Uh, Please remember that chapter and verse divisions are not inspired. Uh, The ideal way to read this is to read it right straight through. The chapter and verse divisions are there uh, for convenience sake. They're a much later addition to the text. And and I'm probably just going to violate what's in the bulletin and read the first couple of verses of chapter 8 just because you shouldn't stop at verse 25. (laughs) Okay? So let's read beginning at verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual. Spiritual. But I am of the flesh, sold under sin, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Lord, help us um, to uh, get into your mind. Um, Help us to understand what it is you want for us to understand and what we so desperately need to understand. And then take this blessed truth, these wonderful things in your word, and press them into our souls, press them deep into our souls. Dear Jesus, we ask in your name, amen. You may be seated. I doubt that there's a person in this room who hasn't at some level felt exactly what Paul describes in verse 15, I don't understand myself. You know, you wake up, you look at yourself in the mirror, and you say, I have no idea who you are. (laughs) I don't understand myself. I don't do what I want, and I do the very thing I hate. That's verse 15 and verse 19. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Last time we were in this passage, I referred to Archbishop William Temple, about whom I know very little, except that he was supposed to have said, "I am not a man; I am a civil war." Um, and each of us, I think, finds that reality to be true, don't we? At some level, we get that, we understand that. Now, I find it, I find it really interesting that in the providence of God, on July 3rd, we're considering these verses just a day before the annual celebration of, in effect, the birth of our country, the Declaration of Independence. Now, I don't know if you've read the Declaration of Independence lately, um, but I'd I'd suggest that you read it. It's a fascinating document. You know probably most of the first lines of it. We hold these truths to be self-evident, or they're among the first lines. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created, Equalary and are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. We, we're familiar with those words. But what there are a couple of things that are fascinating to me about the Declaration of Independence, and the Declaration recognizes these things. Number one, human beings need to be governed. Human beings need to be governed. Right? They need laws. Human beings need to be governed. But here's the other thing that you see in the Declaration, and this really is some of the genius of the Founding Fathers, and particularly, I I think, and I'm not an expert in this stuff, but I've read a bunch of stuff on John Adams. You know from last week I'm reading a biography of Thomas Jefferson. I've read a biography of um, George Washington, and I've read a biography of Alexander Hamilton. So, I mean, I'm, you know, just knowing just enough to be dangerous kind of thing. Um, But but this is a thing that was especially present in Adams, who drafted the Constitution for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, and that became the kind of the formative document for the establishing of our Constitution. And here's the other thing. You see it reflected, actually, in the Declaration of Independence. It is a big mistake to concentrate all of the aspects related to law in one person or group of individuals. People need to be governed, but it is a big mistake to entrust all of the power related to law, whether in its formation, its execution, or its adjudication, right? Legislative, executive. And judicial. It's a big mistake to concentrate all of that power in one individual or in several individuals. And so, what do we have? We have a governmental structure in which power is divided, right? There is a division of powers, there are checks and balances. Here's the point it's a big mistake to entrust lawmaking, law enforcing, and law adjudicating to someone who himself or herself needs to be governed. Right? That's the genius of this thing. That's the brilliance of what these guys understood and conceived. And why is that? Why is that? Why was there the the division of powers to the executive, the legislative, and the judicial branches of government? Because, Because laws are not enough. Laws are not enough. And that's Paul's point in Romans chapter 7. You can create, at the human level, the best governmental structure the world has seen. That's what we've enjoyed. That's what we continue to enjoy. You can create the best laws imaginable. But you know what laws can't do? They can't regulate the human heart. They can't change the human heart. They can't free the human heart. And that's Paul's point in these verses. Something bigger, something more is needed. You, can't, you cannot create a truly just society with law alone. Because there's a bigger problem. And the bigger problem is the human heart. And that's what Paul is driving at in this passage. That's what he's been trying to show through this whole section of this letter. Actually, beginning back in chapter 5 and working through chapter 6 and now into chapter 7. Law isn't big enough. It's not enough. Now, I want to give you three pegs to hang this on, this, this passage and the things that I want to I want to share with you from it. But the first thing I have to do is this. I have to tell you, I have to humble myself before you and tell you that after 40 years as a Christian, after 60 years on this planet, after 30 plus years in pastoral ministry, I've come to a different understanding of what is going on in Romans chapter 7. I hope I can make the case and not get tossed out of my job. Let me just give you the bottom line and then I'll try to put it in its context and we'll try at the end to draw out a few applications. The bottom line is this, as Paul writes, beginning in verse 7 of chapter 7 and through the end of this chapter, verse 25, Paul is writing to a Jewish person as a Jewish person in order to give hope to Jewish people. Okay. He's writing as a Jewish person who thinks the way Jewish people think to Jewish people who think the way Jewish people think in order to give hope to Jewish people who desperately need something bigger, something more than law. So often when people come to this, to this passage, the question obviously is asked, who is Paul talking about here? What is being described here? Well, I will tell you, Paul is describing himself. I believe he's writing autobiographically. I think he was doing that in verses 7 through 12 and then on into 13 and following. He is writing, assuming the position that he once held, a place he knows very well. He's writing as a Jewish person living under the law before he has come to understand the gospel. That's how he's writing. So let me give you the three pegs again. I've already suggested to them. First, in these verses, Paul is speaking to the Jewish person. He's speaking to a Jewish person. Second, he is speaking about a Jewish person, namely himself. And then third, he is speaking for Jewish people to give them hope. Okay, now let me try to make the case. Okay, first, Paul in these verses is speaking to a Jewish person. What do I mean? Well, again, if you go back through this letter, which I've done, I mean, I've been reading it and rereading it and rereading it. If you go back through this letter, starting at the beginning and coming right up and through chapter 7, the Apostle Paul has very much in mind the audience he is addressing. Now, just a quick little bit of history. The initial group of believers in Rome were Jewish people, there were people who had come to Jerusalem for Pentecost. And when the Spirit fell and Peter preached, and you can read this in Acts chapter 2, among those who were converted were people from Rome. And what did they do? They went back to Rome. So the first Christian believers in Rome were Jewish people. And they would have done what you do, what I do. When you encounter some great, glorious good news, you want to talk about it. And they did that. They most certainly did that. I can't give you text and verse. But don't we know that, that that's how the gospel gets gospeled, it gets heralded, it gets proclaimed publicly, officially, formally in places like this, and it gets talked about in natural conversation. And these people who had come to embrace Jesus as Messiah went back to Rome as converted, if you will, or completed, which is probably the better word to use, completed Jews, went back to Rome, began talking about it they talk about it in synagogues and around synagogues. And pretty soon, it's not only those believers who were there, but others who are coming to faith in Christ. And then there are Gentiles who are beginning to embrace this thing. And before too long, these little gatherings of Christians around Rome are mixed congregations made up of Gentiles and of Jews. In the late 40s, because of controversy over who Jesus was, the Jews were expelled from Rome. They were sent away from Rome. So the congregations became Gentile congregations. Okay? The Jews were all gone, or they were in hiding. But then later in the 50s, they were permitted to come back. They were allowed to return. And if you go to Acts chapter 16, or I'm sorry, Romans chapter 16, the end, of this, um, the end of this letter, you'll see listed among the names of people whom Paul addresses, you'll see very early a reference to Priscilla and Aquila. Romans 16, verse 3. My fellow workers in Christ Jesus who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks. Greet also the church in their house. Okay, now, here's the point, bottom line. Initially a Jewish church, Jews are expelled. The church then becomes almost exclusively Gentile. The Jews are permitted to return, and we know that there are Jews there because Priscilla and Aquila, who are Jewish, are in Rome, and they have a church in their house. There are these house churches all over Rome. Okay. Now, what happens when they come back? Well, what happens when they come back to Rome? is what seemed to happen repeatedly. There were tensions between Jews and Gentiles. There were issues that had to be resolved. And Paul, who through 25 years of ministry, has learned the questions that Jewish listeners are going to ask when they hear the gospel, right? He's writing this letter from Corinth, It's in the mid to late 50s, probably 57 AD. He wants to go to Rome, but before he goes to Rome, he wants to make sure that those whom he's going to visit, those with whom he's going to minister, among whom he's going to preach, he wants to be sure that they understand the gospel that he is preaching. And one of his concerns is to address the Jewish listeners who are among these congregations. He wants to anticipate all of their questions and respond to all of their questions. And one of the big questions for Jewish listeners to the gospel is the place of the law in the life of the church, the place of the law in the life of the Christian. And Paul is constantly coming back to this issue of the law, this matter of the law. Now, let me take you really quickly... From Chapter Two uh, of Romans, of, of Romans, and just refer you to some verses. And let me—I'm just going to read them, and I want you to listen to them. I want you to hear what is being said. Romans two, verses one through five. Now, again, try try to insert yourself into that setting. Okay, house churches all over the place. This letter is going to go to them. The house churches are made up of both Jew and Gentile. Paul is particularly sensitive to the questions that his Jewish listeners have. Listen how repeatedly in this letter he is addressing those Jewish listeners, some of whom have embraced Christ most certainly, some of whom are seeking, all of whom are trying to understand the significance of this gospel that Paul is preaching. Listen to the first five verses of chapter 2. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. Who is Paul referring to? I'm convinced he's referring to the Jews. Chapter 1, he's been describing the problem of sin, that it's universal in scope, that it penetrates to the depth of who and what we are. But in chapter 2, he begins to caution the Jewish listeners and say, look, don't look down your noses at the Gentiles. You have the same problem they have. You have the same problem. The man of verse 1 of chapter 2 is the Jewish listener. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such such things. But do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Do you hear the difference in there? Referring to God's judgment rightly falling upon those who practice such things. But if you're a Jew, understand the judgment of God is indiscriminate. Right? Chapter 2, verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and suggest that you are a guide to the blind. You hear that? If you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and suggest or are sure that you are a guide to the blind. Chapter 3, verse 1, what advantage has the Jew? Chapter 3, verse 9, what then? Are we Jews any better off? Chapter 3, verses 27 to 29. What becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Chapter 4, verse 1. What was gained by Abraham, our forefather? And then chapter 7, verse 1. Here it's explicit. Do you not know brothers? For I am speaking to those who know the law. Chapter 7, verse 4. Likewise, my brothers. Who are the brothers here? Well, I think the brothers are Paul's brothers according to his ethnicity. His Jewish brothers. The ones he has particularly in mind as he writes this letter. In Romans 9 through 11, those three chapters, Paul raises the question of whether God's promise to the Jews has failed. Those three chapters, 9, 10, and 11, all focus on that issue. Has God's promise to the Jews failed? failed and Paul will go on to say in those chapters that it hasn't and he's going to go on to say that he is the chief evidence of the fact that those promises have not failed that they are fulfilled in him and those like him who have come to see Jesus as the promised Messiah it is in them that the promises are fulfilled that's several months away from us but that's the summary of 9 and 10 and 11 so here's what I'm coming to see I'm coming to see that this letter to the Romans is in large measure, not exclusively, but it is in large measure an apologetic for a Jewish audience, not exclusively Jewish. It's a mixed audience, to be sure, but it is a defense of the gospel that Paul has been preaching with the Jewish listener particularly in mind. And so in verses 7 through 12 of chapter 7, and then again in verses 13 through 25, Paul is showing especially Jewish listeners, those who have come to embrace Christ, those who are still seeking to understand Christ, but Jewish listeners who are continuing to hold on to the law as their place of safety, their place of security, their means of salvation, their means of redemption, You know that this was a problem in the early church, right? It was a problem in Acts chapter 15. The first church council had to deal with this very issue. What happens when a Gentile person embraces the Messiah? Does that person have to be circumcised? And the church said no. Paul in Galatians is dealing with the same thing, constantly having to deal with With how Gentiles relate to the gospel, how Gentiles relate to the church, and how the law relates to them. And so what Paul is doing in these verses in chapter 7, first in 7 through 12, then in 13 through 25, he is showing these folks what the true function of the law is. And he uses himself as the principal example. He speaks autobiographically using himself as the principal illustration of someone who embraced the law, loved the law, saw the law as good, saw the law as spiritual, but who found that the law, rather than liberating and freeing him, actually exposed him and condemned him. That's what law does. So verses 7 through 12. Paul is answering the question, is the law a sin? That question arises because of what he says in verse 5 of chapter 7. While we were living in the flesh, and make note of the language, while we were living in the flesh, because it's going to become important under the second point, while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions were aroused by the law. Okay? When we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions were aroused by the law. So you can hear, you can expect, you can sort of anticipate the dialogue that happens. Well then, Paul, you're saying that the law is sinful. No, no, I'm not saying the law is sinful. He says that the law is holy and righteous and good. What he's saying is, or what, if I can take the role of Paul, what I'm saying is this is how the law works. It isn't sinful, but it does reveal sin. And in my case, it revealed my covetousness. It showed me my covetousness. It exposed me. In verse 10, here's this paradox you can hear Paul saying what promised life actually killed me. The law does promise life. If you can keep it, the law will give you life if you can keep it. But once the law begins to do its work, showing me who I am and what I really am, the law actually kills me. It exposes me, and then it condemns me. It kills me. Okay, Paul, so what you're saying, and you're trying to say that the law is good. You're trying to say that it's not sinful. You're trying to say these things. But it sounds, Paul, like you're saying that the law produced death. Is that what you're saying? Are you saying that the law produced death? No. No, the law doesn't produce death. It is sin that produces death. And that takes us all the way back to chapter 5 and to this contrast that the apostle set up between Adam, through whose disobedience sin and death entered the world, and the last Adam, Jesus Christ, by whose obedience life and freedom are secured. That's the contrast that Paul sets up in chapter 5. No, it isn't the law that produces death. It is sin that produces death. And so Paul continues to maintain and uphold that the law is holy and righteous and good. The problem is not the law. See, this is the point. You can have the best law available, and it will do certain things. But what it's going to do ultimately is expose me. It's going to reveal me, and that's going to kill me and condemn me. So who is Paul writing these things to? This is the case I'm trying to make, that he has a Jewish audience very much in mind. So then the second point, about whom is he writing? Well, he's clearly writing about himself, but of course the question becomes, at what point in his life is Paul referring to himself? Where in his spiritual progression is he referring to himself? Well, let me just suggest to you that that's not the issue here. That's not the thing that Paul is concerned about. Paul is not in this passage, if I, can, if I can use some other words, Paul is not referring here, describing here, concerned here with the whole means by which a person becomes a Christian. He's not talking about sanctification. He's not talking about what precedes that, which is regeneration and the new birth that leads to sanctification. He's not concerned about those things. What he is concerned about is the law and what the law does. And so he is assuming in these verses, beginning at verse 14, again, this autobiographical posture in which he is reflecting back upon his own experience. And listen to the things that he says. The contrast that is set up here. In the first place, he sees the beauty of the law. Look, Jewish people saw the beauty of the law. Verse 14, he says the law is spiritual. That is to say it has a divine origin. That's what this means in this text. It has a divine origin. It has a divine authority. And there is a divine quality about it. Okay? I'm I'm reading the law right now. I'm in numbers. I just... Gotten through Leviticus, and it's you know you labor to read through Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, and I think I've shared the story about my middle daughter Annie who was trying to read through the Bible, and I walked in her on, into her room one night to say goodnight, and she had she was sitting up against the headboard of her bed, and her knees were up, and she had her Bible in her lap, and she was asleep. And when I walked in, she woke up and she looked down at her Bible and she said, Oh, the molds, the molds. I'm finished with the molds. Right? I mean, there's all kinds of stuff in the law. But as you read the law, let me tell you what you see in the law are pictures, little snapshots of the beauty and glory and wonder of the goodness and mercy and kindness of God. You see his holiness and his righteousness. You see through the law him presenting himself as a God who is different from the nations and the gods of the nations. I mean, look, for example, at the way the law of God in the Old Testament cares for the alien and the stranger, the widow, the orphan, the defenseless. It comes from God. And when Paul says that the law is spiritual, he's saying it has this divine origin, it has this divine authority, and it tells us things about God. Why does God command us not to steal? Why does God command us not to speak ill of our neighbors? Why does God command us not to have adultery with someone else's spouse? Why does God tell us not to covet things? You see, it, we know those things are right. In our heart of hearts, we know those things are right. And they reveal to us a God who is behind what is right and who is himself right. That's what Paul means when he says the law is spiritual and he could see it. Verse 16, Paul can agree that the law is good. He can see that it's spiritual and he can agree that it is good. He can understand it. And he can even, verse 18, desire it. He can desire it in the inner man. His mind, verse 25, can tell him that it's right and good. See, now again, Paul is not discussing, this is not biblical anthropology here, right? Paul is not discussing what human beings are in their condition of fallenness and sin. You go other places for that. You go to Ephesians 2 and various other places to hear and talk about that. What he's concerned about here is the law. And what he's saying on the one hand is that he can see that it is spiritual. He can see that it is good. He can see with his mind that the law of God is a right and even again verse 22 he can delight in it in the inner man but then there's the other side of the contrast there are the other things that Paul says verse 14 I am of the flesh the law is spiritual but I am of the flesh I am something altogether different. It's the same word, you remember, that's used back in verse 5 when he says, when we were living in the flesh. What is that, living in the flesh? Well, it's living life apart from Jesus Christ. It is living life disconnected from the source of life. It is living life apart from the redeeming grace of Jesus Christ. And when we live life that way, back in that fifth verse, The law aroused our sinful passions and they were at work in our members in order to bear fruit for death. Paul says, I'm of the flesh. I'm not spiritual. I'm altogether different. Than the law. Verse 14, sold under sin. No matter, and this is the key thing. This is really, really key. No matter how much he delighted in the law, no matter how good it was that the law was, knowing it to be spiritual, he was in bondage. Sold as a slave to sin. That's what he was a Jewish person. Familiar with the law, knowing the law to be good, delighting in the law, loving the law in the inner man, but powerless to do it, powerless to perform it remember when I was in college, I mean, you, you know, the question that comes up in these, these conversations is, how is it possible for a non-Christian person, you're telling me that Paul is, is writing autobiographically, reflecting on his own experience before he became a Christian, before he embraced Jesus, how is it possible for a non-Christian to delight in the law and the inner man? To love the law, to see it as spiritual, to see it as good. I thought we were dead in trespass and sin. Well, again, this is not biblical anthropology. We're not talking about the ravaging effects of sin here. Paul's talking about the law. And it is possible. In fact, if I were to put, kind of pin the tail on the donkey, if you will. If I were to try, try to stick a pin on the unfolding story of Paul's coming to Christ, what I would suggest, I don't know this and he doesn't say it, but what I would suggest is that what Paul is describing are those first moments when the full force of the law began to fall upon him and he began to see just how sinful he was, just how desperate he was, just how deeply needy he was. Not yet a Christian, Hasn't yet received Jesus. Hasn't been set free from the law of sin and death. But beginning to come to terms with the full power and weight of the law of God. As it impacts him personally. Is it possible for that to happen? This would be a bit circular for me to put it this way. But I would say absolutely because Paul says so here. If you're with me. But I remember when I was in college reading the works uh, of Martin Buber. You may not know that name, but Martin Buber was a Jewish philosopher and scholar. And I, in college and seminary, I had to read some of his works. Never came to Christ, as far as I know. Never embraced Jesus as the Messiah. But you read his expositions of the scriptures. You read his prayers. You read In what he says, there is a love, as a Jewish person, there is a love for the law of God and a delight in it. But you see, what Paul is concerned to show us here is that the law, good, spiritual, beautiful, all of those things, the law is powerless to help anyone. And Paul uses himself as the supreme example and gets to the end of this exposition, reflecting again upon his own experience and says, who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will set me free? The law can't do it. The law can't do it. So he's writing for the Jewish listener, Number two, he's writing autobiographically describing his experience with the law before coming to faith in Christ. And in those 24th and 25th verses, he's bringing the whole thing to a crescendo. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And the picture is the picture of a man, and the commentators will tell you this, the picture is the picture of a man who has a decaying corpse strapped to his back. And everything visual and oral about this man smells and reeks not of righteousness, not of freedom and liberty, but of bondage and of death. Who will deliver me? O wretched man that I am. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that's the third point. This is the third point. He's speaking to these Jews who want to hang on to the law and he's saying to them, there is a way out. There's a way out of your feelings of frustration. There's a way out of your feelings of failure. There is a way out of the condemnation that comes from the law. There is a way out of the death that inevitably results from any attempt to keep the law. It's good, it's beautiful, and you are powerless and helpless before it. We had a gathering this last Thursday night with some of the young families and parents in our church. I think we're going to start a study, just in case you're interested, I think, or friends of yours might be interested. I think we're going to start a study entitled, getting to the heart of parenting. And we had some discussion. We listened to the first episode, and we had some discussion afterwards. And you know, when you listen to something like this, and the first session was just global. It was just big picture. It was just broad. Whenever you do a thing like that, think about it. Whenever you do a thing like that, you say, okay, we're going to do this thing. Get into the heart of parenting. We're going to give you the tools. We're going to give you what you need. You're going to come to this thing. We're going to spend ten weeks together and you're going to leave this thing and you're going to be a great parent and your children are going to be great kids because we're going to give you four things that you can do in order to make your kids great kids. No! 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 You don't need four things. Your kids don't need four things. You'll say to me when I say this, Oh Mike, I know that. Now get on to the good stuff. You don't need four things. Your kids don't need four things. You need Jesus. And your kids need Jesus. And that is what Paul is saying here you Jews of all people should understand how powerless you are before the law because you have the best laws that were ever given and you, if you're honest, know you can't keep them. You're powerless. You're helpless. And not only are you powerless and helpless, you are imprisoned and exposed to death and condemnation. So let me give you a better way. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. See, when you come to the end of these, it's like, okay, you've given me the global thing. You told me now, what do we say? What do we say? Tell me what to do. Give me a rule. Give me a guideline. Give me the magic bullet. The only magic bullet Paul had was Jesus Christ. Alive, dead, raised, ascended, and present in the person and power of his Holy Spirit. That is the only hope bullet rule I have. And if you start anyplace else, And this is where the application is much more broad than just the particular people Paul is addressing. If you start any place else, you are doomed to frustration and failure on the one hand or pride and arrogance on the other hand. If it becomes rules and magic bullets, people who can't keep the rules get crushed and people who can become proud and arrogant. And that is not the gospel. The point of application is that while Paul, I am absolutely convinced, was speaking about himself before he tasted the liberation that is in Jesus, the application is always universally the same. Laws cannot help you. They can't save you. Whether you're a non-Christian or a Christian for five minutes or a Christian for 50 years, there is one place to go for help. One place where there is power. And that is Jesus Christ. Who's he talking to? I believe he's talking to Jews who love the law and believe they can be saved by it. About whom is he speaking? He's speaking about himself before he came to know Jesus Christ as one who labored under that very law and was crushed by it. And who is he speaking for? He is speaking for anybody who feels the weight and burden of your own guilt and shame and failure. And he's saying there's a better place. And that place is Jesus. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, in practical terms... This is so hard to work out. But would you, because you are so supremely merciful and gracious, would you, because you are gracious and merciful, pour out your spirit upon this congregation of people and give us first eyes to see, eyes to see, Jesus really is all we need. Give us hearts to believe this. Give us wills that instead of turning to rules and regulations, more and better laws, give us wills. To humble ourselves before you and turn again and again and again to Jesus, the only one who can save us. Please press this home to our hearts and souls. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, can I just. As you're turning to him, number 94, it's going to take you a minute to get there, but as you're turning to him, number 94, let me just add this other little application. I don't know if this is me or the Holy Spirit, okay? But if by chance there's anybody in this room who is saying to himself or herself, I hope so-and-so heard that, you understand you have a problem, Right? Because you are the so-and-so. I am the so-and-so who desperately needs to hear this. So let's stand together and sing number ninety-four, how firm a foundation you